Anchor is a Spotify-owned company that makes it easy for people to get into podcasting. It's an all-in-one, totally free platform where you can record a podcast, host it, distribute it, measure your performance analytics, and find sponsors. And it all works in your web browser or through Anchor's mobile app. Give Anchor a try for free at anchor.fm slash mythsandlegends. That's anchor.fm slash mythsandlegends. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a one-off Arthur episode where he fights the Roman Empire and the totally real and definitely not fictional Emperor Lucius. And we'll see that if your plan for getting your empire back on track involves shaking down a bunch of drunk and heavily armored knights for cash, you might need a new plan. The creature this week is Orphan Bird. It's a bird. That orphans. This is Myths and Legends, episode 152, When in Rome. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Okay, so we are finally at cruising altitude for the King Arthur stories, and every major character is in their place. King Arthur is king of the Britons, and he's married to Guinevere. Together, they're ruling from their seat in Camelot. At this point, the civil wars are over, and Arthur has all of his major knights in attendance save Percival and Galahad, but that's only due to their relationship to the Grail legends. He's established the Round Table, Merlin has died, although Arthur doesn't quite know slash believe it yet, and the big things that will come to threaten Arthur's rule and realm are but shadows on the periphery, not really coming into fruition yet. All in all, things are pretty great. I don't want to jinx it, but I feel like things are going really well for once, King Arthur said, lifting his goblet for another drink. I got all these knights, he nodded to Gawain, Yvain, the talented young Lancelot, who just loved his kingdom so much that he spent a ton of time in the castle, and many others. King Arthur continued, they pushed the Saxons back beyond the sea, for once there were no active rebellions against his rule, and dragon attacks were down. Good job, guys. This pat on the back clearly belonged to all of them. When the cheer died down, however, a lone slow clap trickled from the back of the room. King Arthur squinted and stood. Hey, cool. Like your pseudo-menacing enthusiasm, sir. Senator, the man corrected, stepping forward to reveal himself and 11 of his companions, all holding olive branches. Senator, the king asked. He turned quickly to his brother. Hey, okay, do we have senators? What, what political system even is this? Oh, absolute monarchy and no, no senators. Kay replied before standing. All eyes turned to Kay. We don't have senators. Where are you guys from? He boomed across the room. The senators smiled. We're from the Roman Empire. And we're here because, well, you're in the Roman Empire. And your tribute is overdue. In a comical shuffling of feet, everyone turned a second time back to the throne. Arthur looked to Kay again, who shrugged. Arthur really wished Merlin was here. He had a way of talking his way out of stuff like this. And he could shoot fireballs from his hands when he couldn't. Arthur stood and put his hand on Kay's shoulder, telling his seneschal to sit. The Roman Empire... That band broke up, like, what, 20 years ago? That definitely wasn't a thing anymore. 
We're a thing, the senator spat back. Arthur nodded. The Eastern Empire and Constantinople, maybe. But the Western? That collapsed in 476 AD. It was the early 500s AD now. Go with the times, guys. Arthur could explain the math, but he shouldn't have to. Britain wasn't part of the Roman Empire anymore. The senators were growing angrier and angrier with each word. Yes, it was. Oh, cool. Then where was Rome when the Saxons invaded? Or during all the civil wars? Hmm? Or when red and white dragons were fighting in the sky? By now, Arthur was making full use of the stage, gaining confidence. We were being sacked repeatedly. You know what? I'm a senator. I don't have to answer that. Look, we have an emperor named Lucius who's consolidating the provinces, and you owe us. Fealty and tribute, plain and simple. <laughs> Yvain laughed at his made-up words, but Gawain whispered that it meant that Britain was to submit to the Romans and pay them. Yvain narrowed his eyes. He had another idea. <sighs> Yvain, you don't have to raise your hand, Arthur said, ceding the floor to his nephew. Yvain stood. Gawainopedia here says that absolute monarchy means that you, the king, are supremely powerful, and you're not bound by any laws, customs, or legislators. Yvain rattled off with smug satisfaction. Yeah, and, replied Arthur, and this is a hostile foreign power trying to demand control over our kingdom. So, can we just, I don't know, kill these guys? Yvain asked. You know, I'm telling you, Uncle, I'm looking around. I'm seeing a lot of head nods. What do you say? Huh? At this, the senators stepped forward. They were holding olive branches, literal olive branches. They were a symbol of peace. All they were asking for was payment, or else the emperor of Rome would take Arthur's kingdom by force. King Arthur looked at the senators, and then to Yvain and his knights, who pointed to their swords and then gave the king a questioning thumbs up. Huh? Arriving with olive branches doesn't give you carte blanche to say whatever you want. Demanding someone's home, no matter how many symbols of peace you hold, doesn't make it peaceful. But no, the knights would not be allowed to kill you, not even a little, Arthur said, furrowing his dad brow and waiting until Yvain sat back down. Clearing his throat, Arthur announced that he would take a week to confer with his nobles to see what they recommended, but the senators shook their heads in unison. This wasn't up for debate. People didn't debate with Rome. They capitulated, or they were crushed. Well, deal with it. Absolute monarchy, Arthur said with a hand wave. And he and his nobles waited until the senators were escorted from the room. After they left, the nobles began discussing. No one could come into Camelot and speak to the king like that. War with Rome was in order. Arthur held up a hand. The senators could be forgiven. They didn't know who they were talking to. They thought him some provincial king. And they weren't wrong. But Arthur was also more than that. He would ride south with his knights and foot soldiers and march on what had once been the greatest city in the world. Because the senators didn't know it. But Arthur, through his grandfather, a Roman noble by the name of Constantine, had a claim. These men weren't just addressing a king. They were addressing an emperor. We should do some historical housekeeping. I had some fun with the dialogue in the last scene, 
But this is an area where the legends and history do not line up, and the legends are 100% okay with that. In the legends, Rome is still very much a powerhouse empire, and Emperor Lucius is a force to be reckoned with. In actuality, the Western Emperor fell to various peoples they call barbarians, and in 476 AD, the title of emperor ceased to be a thing. Instead, the ruler in Rome called himself the King of Italy. Regardless, that is not the case with this story. Rome is still at the peak of its power, able to call allies from as far east as the Middle East and as far north as Germany. Hey, you guys got that money? The totally real and not fictional Emperor Lucius asked the senators, who had returned still holding nothing but olive branches. With weary eyes, they told the emperor he should probably sit down for this. The guy in Britain? Actually pretty cool. He has a super impressive kingdom too. They've really done a lot with the place after its unceremonious abandonment. So, um, small sticking point though. They did not get the money and their presence might have caused one tiny little problem. Just, you know, it's so small it's not even worth getting worried about. The emperor laughed. Well, as long as it was a small problem, who cared? He was just going to take a big gulp of this wine while they told him the problem. Okay, proceed. Yeah, sure, the senators continued. Um, as it turned out, he had a claim to the throne. A better claim than Lucius, actually. And he and over 100,000 knights and foot soldiers were making their way south to besiege the city of Rome. The emperor, as though on cue, spewed his wine all over the throne room. What? So that's what led to Lucius levying troops from all over the provinces. He not only made an army that matched King Arthur's in size, but also recruited 50 giants who, quote, had been engendered by fiends. Which, you know, it's a little harsh that that's all we know about them. It's not really the giants' fault who their parents were. Not having to move 100,000 plus people and all their servants and horses across the channel, the Emperor of Rome was able to get his troops together and over the Alps, just as Arthur and his knights made it to Brittany in northwestern France. Things were going to get real. So, there are two types of King Arthur stories. The first are more British in origin. They focus more on Arthur, and in them, he's a wise, brave, and valiant king. Over time, however, the legend spread, and even though King Arthur is undisputably British, as the French began writing about him, other stories began to gain prominence. That's why Lancelot is such a big deal. He was the son of a French king, raised and trained in France, and it wasn't until young adulthood that he made his way across the channel with his Lady of the Lake mom, who also tricked Merlin into a cave and killed him. He's the best knight in the world, and the French stories mainly focus on the knights of the round table, leaving King Arthur sitting around doing pretty much nothing more than surrendering and getting cuckolded by Lancelot. Again, the best knight in the world, who also happens to be French. Today, however, it's a British story. And so Arthur sets up a government in absentia and makes his way across the channel. Arthur had heard the stories of a giant roaming the land of Brittany, or Little Britain, as it's called in the text. He sat, mounted on his horse, as he listened to one such story. The giant had roamed the land for about seven years. And while it was annoying, what with demolishing farms and killing peasant families, the nobles couldn't really be bothered with trying to stop it. Until the Duchess was out riding one day, and who did she run into? The giant, 
he snatched her and her ladies from their saddles and took her to a mountain hideout where she was. Mm-hmm. Oh, Arthur said. Yeah, the knight nodded. It, it was dark. Anyway, they'd sent a good 500 people up to those mountains, but no one could defeat the giant. This is great mischief, Arthur declared, but said that he would be honored to go up and slay the giant and retrieve the damsel. Mm, I think that great mischief is probably underselling it a bit, the knight replied, but he thanked the famous king. Arthur, however, was insistent. No thanks were necessary when he was doing what was right. He beamed, holding up a hand. The women will be back by daybreak. We'll see King Arthur actually do a little bit of his own dirty work for once. But that will be right after this. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, now back to the show. Arthur called out to the lady crying at the window of the tower. Just that evening, he'd ridden off secretly with Sir Kay, his right-hand man and brother, and Sir Bedivere, a local guy and King Arthur's cupbearer. They'd taken a boat to the island, just off the coast of Normandy, France, and the island contained a small mountain. Why are you crying? Arthur whispered up. And at that, the woman stopped crying, looked at Arthur with a, be serious right now? face, and gestured all around her. She was a prisoner of an evil giant. I come from the noble conqueror, King Arthur Pendragon, and I'm here to rescue you, Duchess, Arthur replied. Oh wait, is noble conqueror a thing? Seems kind of oxymoronic, the woman said. Anyway, yeah, if it had been Guinevere that was taken, the valiant king would have been here, and we would have been rescued weeks ago, the lady said. Yeah, that King Arthur is pretty great, Arthur chimed in. I hear he has awesome hair, too. Chiseled jawline, sparkling personality, just the complete package. Definitely never slept with his half-sister and sunk a ship full of babies. The captive lady nodded. Huh, that was troublingly specific, but okay. There was actually another reason why she was crying, though. She wasn't the Duchess. The Duchess was dead. It happened this morning. She was starting to put up too much of a fight. So the giant made an example out of her for any of the other ladies who wanted to try anything. If this strange knight from King Arthur's court wanted to come back with an army, the giant was sitting in the courtyard beyond the ruined wall and, oh, okay, the knight was going alone then. This should end well. Arthur thought he was prepared for what he would find in the nearby courtyard. He was not. The giant was taking what remained of the last group of men who had come to stop him. He'd taken off all the meaty bits, the legs and arms and whatnot, and he was roasting them over a fire. The ladies in their dirty dresses were turning a mass of arms and legs on a spit, while the giant sat back and sampled their work, tearing into the cooked appendages. 
Arthur stepped over the misshapen stones of a gap in the dilapidated wall, and he unsheathed Excalibur. There would be no bargaining with a man, a thing like this, only death. And Arthur knew that that death would belong to the giant. A rogue adventurer coming in to tell him whose arms he could and couldn't tear off, being extremely annoying for the giant, and, frankly, old hat by this point, the giant rose, armed with only an arm, and thundered toward Arthur. I like to think that Arthur remarked something about this knave bearing arms in the presence of a king, waka waka, and queued up your standard commanding of an overly powerful adversary to surrender immediately and all that, but the giant only continued bounding toward him. When the giant was just a few paces off, Arthur assumed his fighting stance. And that's when it hit him. The arm. The arm that the giant had been eating hit him. Arthur tried to smack it away with his sword, but the arm succeeded in smacking him first. He lost his balance and fell to the ground. Before he could recover, the giant had him by the ankle, dragging him back to the fire to add Arthur's limbs to his growing buffet. Arthur, as his armor clanged against the ground, was grateful. Grateful that the giant hadn't leapt on him and caved in his skull. Grateful that the first blow had only led to a headache. And grateful for all those crunches he'd been doing lately, after seeing how ripped Lancelot was. He still had his sword, and he could still fight. I don't know what he yelled to make the giant turn around, but at that moment, Arthur lurched forward, sword out, and just really made it count. Arthur was an honorable king, but when you're being dragged to a fire to join a giant's buffet, and you see a shot, you take that shot. So Arthur took the shot, even if it was a bit of a cheap one. The king of the Britons slashed at the giant and didn't stop until the creature let him go to tend to his bleeding and mangled groin, anguishing over what Arthur had done. And Arthur didn't waste any time. He was on his feet and slashing at the giant's unprotected stomach until the monster's entrails were peeking through and spilling out onto the ground. When the giant appeared to be bloodied enough, Arthur turned to the ladies at the spit, telling them that they could stop now. It was over. He was King Arthur, and he had saved them. But Arthur hadn't saved them. Not yet. The giant was wounded, but not dead. A fact that Arthur learned as the monster tackled him and wrapped his arms around Arthur's chest. Try as he might to escape, Arthur quickly realized just how dire of a situation this was as the giant's arms began closing in around him. At first, Arthur's arms pushed back, but the giant was unstoppable. Then, Arthur thought his armor would hold, except it didn't, and quickly the metal bent and buckled. He dropped his sword, but Arthur still had a dagger at his belt, a dagger whose handle was slick with the giant's blood, a dagger he couldn't extract as he, and the women, heard the last line of defense begin to pop as the giant squeezed around his ribs. Arthur yelped in pain, and he found the ruined foundation of one of the walls, and, with his last move, before the giant ended him for good, he kicked out against the pillar. This was enough to catch the giant, still bleeding out from the stomach and the, you know, it was enough to catch him off guard and divert the effort he was using to crush Arthur to try to stay on his feet. The giant failed and tumbled backward down a sharp and rocky hill. The women ran to the edge of the hill and looked down. At the bottom, the mass of the giant lay on the rocky beach, covering Arthur completely as the waves washed over them both. The ladies held their breath until they broke out in sobs. 
Below, the giant began to rise. He had lived. One of the ladies broke off into a run, but the ones who stayed at the edge of the hill, in fear and shock, gasped. Wait. The giant rose, and he fell, because Arthur, well, Arthur also rose and fell, but that was because he had used the last of his strength to roll the giant's body off of him. As Arthur slipped into unconsciousness, the bloody dagger slipped from his hand. He had done it. He had defeated the giant. It was super nice of Sirs Kay and Bedivere to show up about three minutes after the fight had ended. Kate cut his brother from his armor, and Bedivere put him on a boat and took him back to camp, where he was given the best medical care 6th century Europe could offer, which I'm sure was more than just leeches and wine, but I'm not sure how much more. Arthur distributed the stolen wealth back to the people, the ones that the giant had robbed, and with all the leftovers, he commissioned a monastery on the island to honor God. This is, according to legend, the source of the monastery on Mont St. Michael, in Normandy, France. It was then that Arthur learned that while he was off on his little side quest, there had been some developments in the main quest line. To his horror, Emperor Lucius had passed into eastern France and had decimated the land. Wait, historically, is there even a such thing as France yet? Arthur managed through shallow breaths. Not remotely, the scout confirmed, and continued on. Roman put the torch to Burgundy and was now marching west. Arthur nodded grimly. He said he would heal, but for now, he ordered his knights onward. Sir Gawain led the vanguard east, and it wasn't long before they met up with their first group of Romans. As Sirs Gawain and Bors, a Norman knight we talked about a long time ago, whose background doesn't really matter for this particular story, met with the Romans before the fighting broke out. One of the Romans called Gawain a hothead, a charge that Gawain deftly refuted by cutting off the man's head in a rage. Thanks to that exchange, fighting broke out well before the Britons were even remotely ready, and Gawain ended up badly wounded, and Bors captured. Gawain regrouped, mustered his forces to take back Bors, win the day, and finally made it back to King Arthur alive, but only just. That night, King Arthur had another buddy in the infirmary tent, although neither could really enjoy the wine from the victory celebrations. As weeks passed, the war continued on, and Arthur healed all while knights like Lancelot risked their lives to fight hundreds of thousands of Romans, winning battles and taking prisoners by the thousands back to Paris. Things were looking up. And in the story by the Britons and for the Britons, the Britons were completely dominating. Surprise. It was Arthur's first day back and frankly, it was going very well. He led the charge into the thick of the battle, Excalibur out and flashing in the sun for all to see. He was back in the literal saddle, and it was only at the sight of the first giant lumbering toward him that Arthur felt a flash of panic. But this wasn't his first rodeo, and so he narrowed his eyes and rode hard, bringing out Excalibur and going, not for the giant's heart, but for his knees. Arthur slashed, and the giant stumbled to the ground. Arthur, riding up, Remarked that now that this giant was the same size as everyone else, he wasn't so bad. Without delay, the giant's head thudded to the ground as Arthur pressed on. And the knights pressed on fervently with him. Even though the battle was grueling, and the Roman numbers seemingly insurmountable, 
it said that each of Arthur's knights fought with the intensity of 100 Romans. It was during the battle that Arthur saw his chance. Far off, commanding from the rear, Emperor Lucius sat atop his horse, waiting for any chance to flee. Arthur regrouped with Sirs Gawain and Lancelot and discussed their plan. Hours later, the battle was going terribly, and even with Lancelot's skill, it looked like it might be a Roman rout, until Arthur saw a signal from the trees. With that, Lancelot and his knights breathed with a new surge of energy and advanced again, routing the Roman warriors until, pressed about as much as he could manage, Emperor Lucius started his retreat. He turned on his horse, and he found himself staring down Gawain's lance, the battle had been a ruse. Now the emperor himself was trapped. Arthur begged him to relent, to surrender, to give up this quest for blood and tribute and go home. Arthur would let him live, so long as he didn't venture west of Italy again. Of course, the emperor spat at these words. And it wasn't until Excalibur literally sliced him in half that he stopped his assault. Acknowledging their defeat, the remaining Romans either bowed or ran but the result was the same. With their emperor dead and their fighting force broken, the Britons had won. Their objective, however, was not yet complete. The Britons pressed further, coming to Germany and then, finally, to Italy. Milan was the first Italian city they approached, and there they met the Duchess and her ladies out front. Beseeching the Britons to spare their city, they would surrender immediately if Arthur would spare it from an ancient and medieval world-style sacking, which was just the worst. I mean, seriously, it was extremely dark. Arthur agreed and took the Duke of Milan captive, sending him to live out his days as a prisoner in Dover and installing a new duke there, a guy by the name of Prospero. Just kidding. But seriously, though, wouldn't that be kind of awesome? From there, the Britons marched past Ravenna, Florence, and through Tuscany, offering the same deal to one Italian city after another until they finally reached the Eternal City. Rome. The same 12 senators who had come to Camelot stood out in front of the city. They still held their olive branches, but they were now far more willing to talk. King Arthur informed them that he would be letting them live, but on one condition, that they serve their new emperor with the same loyalty and bravery with which they serve their old emperor. The senators exchanged glances who was, oh, got it, Arthur. Arthur was their new emperor. Very much talking with his hands, Arthur tried to explain that, through some complicated genealogy, he was actually the rightful heir to the position of emperor. But the senator stopped him right there. In the later stages of the Roman Empire, genealogy did not matter at all. If a conquering general said he was the emperor, he was the emperor, all right? And so it was that Arthur marched triumphantly through Rome, until he arrived at the Palatine Hill. There, he met the Pope already waiting for him, and Arthur was crowned Emperor of Rome. From Ireland, across France, down through Italy and beyond, Arthur was now the undisputed ruler of the Western world. Being a wise king and a just emperor, Arthur then immediately left the city of Rome and never returned, leaving the city, under seemingly constant attack from barbarian kings, to fend for itself and closing the book on that chapter of Roman non-history. Arriving back home, Guinevere and the other wives of the knights greeted the conquering heroes in Sandwich. And Guinevere was so happy to see Lan 
Arthur. She was so happy to see Arthur, who made it back with the first group. Cool. So great. Lancelot was okay, though, right? Arthur smiled. Of course he was. And it was so nice of Guinevere to care so much about his knights. That's where we're going to leave it this week, with a surprisingly self-contained Arthurian episode. This story is pretty straightforward, but it turned out to be a lot of fun to tell, because it gave me a chance to explore Arthur's life and deeds a little bit. Which is cool, because while he's the focus of his own rise to power, he gets pretty thoroughly overshadowed by the deeds of his knights, as the legend progresses. We're actually going to be kicking up the frequency of the King Arthur stories, because we're four plus years into this podcast, and we're just now getting to Arthur being crowned Emperor of Rome. So we'll be back with another Arthurian story in a few weeks, focusing on Lancelot this time, the hotshot new guy who will come to be known as the greatest knight in the world. But that won't be for a few weeks, because next week, we are going back to Greece and continuing toward the Trojan War. We cover the backstories of some of the biggest characters, Odysseus, Agamemnon, Menelaus, Penelope, and Clytemnestra. It's a big episode, and I'm really excited to be moving forward for Troy, so check it out. Also, if you'd like to support the show beyond leaving a review or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a dissection survey set, a grab bag of preserved animals you can dissect, that's for sale on Amazon for some reason, you can get extra episodes, source back ebooks, and ad-free versions of this show that won't remotely help you understand the anatomy of a fish, clam, cricket, crawfish, frog, starfish, and worm. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Orphan Bird, from the bestiaries of medieval Europe. The Orphan Bird is a hodgepodge of random birds that lives in the Indian Ocean. Its crest, neck, and chest are like those of a peacock, but it has the beak of an eagle, the feet of a swan, and the body of a crane. The Orphan Bird is known as such because of how she treats her young. She lays her eggs in water and then lets nature handle the rest. The good eggs float a little below the mother while she warms them and cares for them. The eggs that contain the bad children, however, sink to the darkness of the sea below. When it's time, the good eggs hatch underneath the orphan bird, and the babies climb aboard mom, and off they go to meet their father. The bad eggs, however, hatch at the bottom of the sea to live out their days in darkness and misery. You know, here's an idea. What if they're bad because they're condemned to a life of watery darkness before they've even done anything? When looking at medieval bestiaries, compiled by medieval naturalists, we shouldn't be looking for things like, you know, facts. Because, well, for the people who wrote them, they weren't looking for information about the natural world. They wanted to explain how the natural and spiritual worlds intersected. So you'll often see things presented as thinly veiled allegories to spiritual concepts. Case in point, the orphan bird is apparently an allegory for salvation. The idea is that souls are created, and those souls are either good, and they fly away to be with their creator, or they aren't and they drop down to the bad place. Say what you want about medieval writers, but there wasn't anything they couldn't turn into a spiritual allegory, even when that allegory turns Jesus into a bird that abandons children. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. 
There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It is so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. For our listeners, even get 10% off your first month with the discount code LEGENDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com legends and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.